So if you have your Bible, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, or your Bible app. No, I don't think you're texting when I see your phones. It's okay. <laughs> I know some of you are. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 6, where we left off. We're going to begin in verse 8 this time. Isaiah 6, verse 8. God is speaking to Isaiah, and Isaiah is still in the presence of the Lord. And Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I go, or whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? And then I said, Here I am, Lord, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, their eye, blind eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, the houses without people, the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like the tabernacle or the oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gift of your word. Father, as we've been looking at it this week and last week, what Isaiah saw and how we apply the principles of what we're understanding, give us the wisdom in the day in which we live uh, to see clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. That part of that passage was the notion that God is going to do a great thing, a judgment thing in the nation of Israel. He's going to send them to Babylon and he has called Isaiah to preach, to teach. His world was in chaos because, as we learn in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, the king had died, and when the king dies, there's chaos, there's political upheaval, there's political unrest. And our question is, in our day, when the world's in chaos, what do we do? How do we respond? How do you answer the question? And how you answer the question, I believe, de depends entirely on where you start your beginning point, what you are focused on in life, how you view what life is for, why it exists, what your purpose here is in the first place. And depending on how you start and how you answer some of those fundamental questions of just life will determine what road you're on, what road you take, what direction you will go, what will be at the end of that road. In other words, everybody has a starting point, I believe. Everyone has a presupposition. Nobody's neutral. Everybody has a starting point, and when you have those gospel conversations, you can work down to the bottom to get and find that out and go, oh, th this is where you're starting. This is your beginning point. And so as we stated last week, our whole point here as a church, our expectation of as a, as a fellowship, our whole passion and breath of life as Christian people is to glorify the Lord, to glorify Him with your life with your thoughts, with your actions, with your job, everywhere, like we say, where you live, work, and play. It gets put on display, in other words. And we saw that because Jesus was our example in that very fact, in John 6, chapter 30, or verse 38, in the fact that he came down to heaven. He came from heaven, not to do his own will, he says, but to, to do the one who sent me. And that's our demeanor, that's our nature of we to do the same. The one that is being sent is his church. But there is seemingly a cost to it all. At least at first glance, there is a cost. You may have wrestled with some of those before you came to know Christ, that all the things you once knew 
all the things you had, all of those things, is he going to ask me to give it all up? Yes and no. If you start with God exists, then that worldview leads you to a specific destination. The idea of what freedom is, what liberty is in life, the limits of liberty and freedom, which allow for the flourishing of mankind as God's designed it and created it to be. But if your starting point says there is no God, God's just this thing that you know, religious people use just to you know, make it through life, if that's where you start, then your foundation is that man is inherently good. He is good to his core. And the only thing he needs is to be educated in a certain way to make sure that all comes out. But this also leads you to a specific destination in that humanity then has no boundaries. There are no limits to freedom and liberty because there isn't any need for them because you are good. And that's where the chaos comes in. If God exists, then your explanation of why the chaos exists to begin with, and if you want to say and change out chaos for evil or anything else in this world, we know biblically where that comes from, why it exists, and why it happens in the world. Psalms 2 says this, the nations rage, the people plot in vain, they set themselves against the king, against the Lord and his anode, they take counsel against him, they want to burst the bonds, we want to get rid of the standard in other words, we don't want God in my life, so we, gotta, we have to do something to get rid of it. And if God doesn't exist, then your explanation for the chaos and why it happens is quite different. You do away with the standard. It's whoever holds power that's creating the standard. So you're just trading something. And so when it comes to chaos and where we are in our culture, that's what we talked about. And we boiled it down last week to two basic groups that we see in Scripture. There are only two types of people in the world, those who have repented and come to Christ and are now on the, the destination of eternal life in Christ and those who aren't. And their destination is judgment, death, and hell. That's two broad categories. And your starting point depends on where you end up, either in liberty and freedom in Christ or in bondage. And so as we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, we saw six visions, six things we were supposed to see through this, this text six ideas and concepts that he had to deal with in his own chaos and how we can apply them today. The first one was just to see God himself. Isaiah saw the Lord, if you remember, to believe that he is, that he exists. That's what we are to see. Hebrews 11 says, without faith is it impossible to please him. You have to understand and know him. He's the one drawing you to himself, in other words. You've got to see him clearly. The second thing was, you have to see him seated on his throne. Uh, he isn't just some, this, this esoteric thing just floating in, in ambiguity somewhere. He's on a throne. He's eternal. He is the God of creation. The beginning and the end, he's outside of all of that. He controls it all. He allows or causes things to happen in this life that we know as life to the sole end and purpose of his glory. And he's seated for a reason because it means he is in control. The posture that he has, that he is in control of the world affairs, even though you and I look out and go, how can this be? It's that understanding, Psalms 119.75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's what we see, isn't it? The affliction. You and I see it. The third thing was to see his holiness, that this world of sin and chaos doesn't affect his nature. His glory, as we've learned, is in heaven, but it's also here on earth. 
You can't compartmentalize them. That allowed us, via Isaiah, to see our own sin. Once he's in the presence of God, he experiences all this that he is seeing. What he's seeing is he's understanding now his own sin nature because God is the standard of everything that's measured against that. That allows us to see what we're supposed to see and come to know when we actually see how desperate we are in our sin is to see the redemption that he's offering. God doesn't just leave you in condemnation, but he's offering you redemption, offers you restoration. Because you and I don't have the capacity to save ourselves. God is faithful. His love is without end. It knows no end. It is boundless and it atones for our sin because of who he is. And that atonement can be found in no other place than Jesus Christ. And that's where we left off. So today, the last thing, vision we are supposed to see is the mission. Isaiah works through all these glories in his presence, in his, in his encounter with the Lord. And then he gets to the end of all that, and God has a question for him. Who's going to go for us? After which, seeing such glories, and after understanding everything God did for Isaiah, his only response, the only rational response you can have is, here I am, I'll go, send me. And so the first part of seeing the mission, of truly understanding what you're doing is to actually volunteer for it. All of those of you that are in the military kind of have this instant reflex, right? (laughs) Don't volunteer for anything. This mission you need to volunteer for. You need to step up at the line and go, here I am, God. I don't know where it goes, where it leads, but I trust you completely with everything about my life, where the direction is, where it's going, knowing it's going to be a blessing not only to me, but to the people in my life that you bring in and out of my life. I will trust you completely in it. based solely on what God has already done for you and saving you and redeeming you out of his boundless love for you in response, you out of your love and devotion for what he's done to you and for you through Christ, redeeming you out of certain destruction, here I am, send me. And therefore, every believer in Christ is called to go back in the chaos from which you just came, Matthew 28, just like Isaiah is about to do in our text. Notice how God reminds him of where he's going, by the way. This is really difficult and hard, but if you go to verse 9 and 10, go and say to this people, here's the message. He doesn't really give specifics, but he lets him understand. When you go, this is what's going to happen, Isaiah. This is what's going to take place, because I've already predetermined my judgment for these people. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, don't perceive. Make their hearts of this people dull, their ears heavy, their eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. But I thought that was the point, isn't it? And you're sending me out to a situation that says they're not going to hear. That should sound familiar by, the, by now after we've gone through Mark chapters 1 through 5. There, there should be this understanding of where else did that apply in the New Testament? Didn't it apply... And how Jesus taught? How did Jesus taught? What did he teach in? Remember? Parables for the same reason. You're going to hear it, but not get it. It's, in other words, it's judgment. He is already judging them for what they've done in the past. You've rejected the prophets. You've rejected my ways. He sends Isaiah. I'm going to send you out one last time, but they're not going to hear it, understand it. Just like Jesus. Here's the last prophet. The king of kings comes. 
you're going to hear it, think you understand it, think you get what's going on, but you have no clue because you are dull of hearing because it is God's judgment on a nation. But he's obliged to go. And when you go, they're not just going to believe you, but they're going to think you're the problem. They won't just ignore you when destruction comes or when the cities are laid waste or the houses are without people. What the, what, I mean, you've got to get this mental picture of what's really going on. They're being hauled off. It is a war. God's going to use Babylon to draw them out and take them away because of their lack of obedience. And so you see that in Matthew 23. You see that reminding that when the church started in Acts chapter 7. Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, Matthew 10. Nothing's changed. But something I think has changed. I think the change has come with us and and how we see the mission and what determines the mission. And so what I see is three classifications of Christian people who view the mission. And this, to me, is also critical. There are those who call themselves Christians but defend defend the world. They want to do what the world does, act like the world does, in essence, they've our leadership in rather high places uh, in Christian in the Christian world that basically have helped our secular tyrants pound the chains to make the shackles that bind us all. Something like something like get vaccinated means loving your neighbor. Things like that. In other words, I have the power to tell you what to do and you should do it. And I'm going to tag this scripture verse or think it's somehow religious in some fashion to make you feel guilty or process otherwise. And if you don't say what I do, you're the bad person. The second are Christians who just honestly just don't want to deal with anything really. Stick their head in the sand and just wait for the rapture. <laughs> I'm just going to be nice. I'm going to live in piety and be good and do all these good things and be nice to people till Jesus returns, but quite frankly, that's not very helpful to the mission whatsoever. And third, there are people, believers here, who understand God is on his throne from time and eternity. He is, has his kingdom. He is reigning presently, currently. And we, as his church, are meant to have dominion and authority over it all and have the responsibility to do so. The first group now has what I would consider a new name, and it's not new, but it's basically tuned to us, and that's this idea of wokeness. That's the first group. That man can transform himself, and as long as you fall in line, you'll be okay, and it'll be all good with you. The second knows the world is evil, but can't do anything about it. It's just too far gone. It can't be redeemed, so we just have to cope with the mess. We just have to cope with the chaos and try to gut it out in this life, and, and, and then, then we'll be okay. But the third group is grounded in the Word of God and understands the Great Commission and God's expectations and being obedient to His reign and His rule because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Meaning the gospel permeates every aspect of life, not just your life and your salvation. We talked about that last week. If, you had, if that's your view, if that's your narrow view, you need to expand your view of the gospel because it affects how you do your job tomorrow, or this afternoon, your work ethic or ethics in general. It affects education and our studies. All of those fields, uh, if you've had conversation about you know, just war theory and all of those things that we've seen because of what's transpiring in the world, every square inch of the world, in other words, belongs to him. It's his, and they are subject to him because of the gospel. 
And so it's important, I think, for us to understand when you go out into the battlefield on the mission, there are different sectors, if you will, in the battle. It's not all one, but I'm just going to use one as an example, one that we used a number of weeks ago, and that's our sexuality. In the current chaos, the headlines, the battle situation on the field is that, or the process, rather, I suppose, is the feminization of men and the masculization of women. And all the differences and disparities, all that does in the current culture and concept means equality. That, that, that's what that means, or discrimination, rather. If there's differences, if there are disparities in any one of those areas, that's discrimination. And the purpose of which is to make gender non-distinct, that there is no distinction whatsoever, which is a really strange thing to me. Because that's a lie. But it's okay if you are consistent in your thinking, then God doesn't exist. You can believe those things. That's how you explain evil in the world. I can explain it from my view that sin is in the world and we do sinful things and all of that. But if God doesn't exist, that's how you explain it. There's all these social constructs that take place and the people in power, it's, they're the evil ones. That's why all the chaos shows up in the world. Evil is just a social construct created by those in power that the rest of us have to deal with and claim to be the victims of, especially when we don't like it. What does that do? Just like it did in Genesis chapter 3, the beautiful thing about being a Christian is I know there's nothing new, it just gets recycled, and you can go back and look. What the problem is, is it removes all responsibility from you as an individual. It's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. Remember that in Genesis? God, it wasn't, it wasn't, it's not me, it's the woman you gave me. It wasn't me, it's the servant. It, it, and we just do this. It's always somebody else. And what it allows us to do is deflect our responsibility to the Lord. So much so that all the uproar over the last week or so with the new Supreme Court nominee when asked, can you please define what a woman is? Whether you think that question was appropriate or not doesn't matter. But her response to me was very interesting in that I'm not a biologist. What does that imply? Well, then go ask one, right? They know. Somebody knows. If you don't, somebody, it can be defined then. Or from the USA Today to kind of follow up after that was, you know, pushed all over the place. The headline, science says there is no simple way to answer the question, what is a woman? What? Really? You really believe that? Man, no, the real issue is that you are suppressing the truth, according to Romans chapter 1, which you don't like the standard. That's all this means. I don't like God's standard. The real issue is that you are lost. You are blind. You love being in the darkness rather than the light because it exposes. 2013, the DSM, the Diagnostic of Statistical Manual and Mental Health Disorders, did something. They did something. They did it in 1973 as well. But this time they removed gender dysphoria as a mental illness, as it was done in 73 with homosexuality. Not because of any of the science. See, that's just one section of the mission field that you're going to go into where you live, work, and play tomorrow. Your kids will deal with it at school at some level. You will deal with it at work and have you know, uh, certain trainings that you have to comply with now. 
And as you assess the situation, let me give you three assessments real quick. One is this. It shouldn't surprise you whatsoever. This should not be a surprise. Why? Because sinful people do sinful things. When you were in the darkness, when I was in the darkness, it's what we did. It's all we knew. There was no other option. So it can't be a surprise. Number two is you really can't get upset and point fingers and blame and, and do all of that because that does absolutely nothing. It's not helpful, in other words, just to do that. The third assessment is you can righteously be angry at the real enemy, Satan himself, who controls each person who is under his control or his thought process because they are in the dark, or the cultural elites, or ideology, groups, corporations even now. The principalities and powers, in other words, that we see in Ephesians that align themselves with who Satan is as he cheers them on and waves the flag all the way to the road of destruction, death, and hell. So what do we do? Do you see the mission? Let me give you four tactics on how to apply the mission as you and I live life. The first tactic is this. Desire to choose and focus on the source, not the individual. Why is that? Because... You and I were once over here in the darkness, all of us. We were all in the darkness. No one is exempt from that fact. We were all once were, according to 1 Corinthians 6, we all once were that, something, whatever that was, but it doesn't really matter what the thing was. What matters is you and I were in the darkness. And attacking the individual doesn't really help so much. God loves all people, everywhere, all time, whatever shape, whatever uh, sinful appetite it takes in someone's life, your life or mine, he loves all of them, all seven billion people on the planet. How do I know? Romans 5.8, for God showed his love for us in that what? While we were still sinners, while we were still over here in the dark, he loved us and sent his son for us. We didn't have anything to do with it. We didn't want him. We didn't think about him. We didn't care about him. We didn't want to do anything for him. Nothing. But Christ died for me when I was there, and he did it for you too. How is that? How can God love a people like that? Well, consider this for a minute. What other choice did God have? In other words, what other kind of people are there? Apart from being in Christ and him calling you out of darkness, what other people are there for him to love? Does that make sense? I mean, there's nobody else that he can love except people that are sinful, people that are lost, people that are in Adam. And so he demonstrates his good and goodness and graciousness to sinful people. How does he do that? John 3.16 might be familiar to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The sad thing is, is we stop there. <laughs> For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Didn't need to. Because when you're over here, you're already condemned, just like in Isaiah. It, it, just like Jesus' judgment in Matthew 23, that what they didn't understand, Rome is coming in, in about 40 years from now. It's the same thing. I don't need to condemn you when you're already condemned. Judgment has already happened. You are already condemned in your sin, in the darkness. He doesn't need to come in and just start piling it on. Jesus didn't need to come and start shouting at everybody, telling them how wretched they were. That's not why he came. He came 
to demonstrate his love for you, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How does that happen? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You're not over here anymore. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's how he's defining the standard, how the terms. Why is he condemned? Because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. That's why. That's why you're still in darkness. Because you don't believe. Oh, you may come to church all day long. That doesn't matter to me. You just don't believe. I know a lot of people like that. He didn't come to condemn. The world is condemned already. It's doomed to die. And you and I will. Old age, wars, accidents, sickness, famine, overdoses, whatever, whatever it is and in, our, in our darkness, but even our lack of understanding sometimes as a Christian, we get kind of mixed up with this. Why is this happening? Well, the theological rationale for that is because you and I are sinful. Our flesh has to die so new life can happen. How or when that happens, you and I don't get to decide. Here are some other dynamics of the mission field that you're going into today, tomorrow, when you go to work. From This is from Barna. And I don't like statistics too much, but I don't use them too often. But this is in an age group, 25 to 40-year-olds. 96% of 25 to 40-year-olds have no biblical worldview understanding of what that means. 75% believe there is no meaning or purpose in life. And that one to me is just brutally sad. 70% believe there is no God. Those statistics are all consistent though. Of that group of the 18 to 24 year olds, 39% now identify as LGBTQ. And if all we can do when we go out on the mission is just shout and carry on, and we need to shepherd, not shout. So when you go where you live, work, and play tomorrow and find yourself in the battle sector of sexuality or pick another one, it doesn't matter. We have to understand the tactics that were being used. And the first one is recognize that God loves these people that he's brought into your life. They are not the enemy according to Ephesians 5 and 6. The second tactic is this, and this is where it gets a little dicey for you as a Christian. You need to speak the truth over the delusion. You don't get to go along with the lie. We'll get to this a little bit more in Mark chapter 6. One of the, you know, Just as an example, just a little parking there for a minute because I can't wait to get back to chapter 6. <laughs> John the Baptist. That's why he's in prison. He's in prison for doing this very thing. To love Herod and his wife who shouldn't have been his wife and he calls them out. You shouldn't have your brother's wife. He was already married to your brother which is just a weird you know, family situation to begin with to me. But you, you shouldn't have it. So he calls them out and he keeps calling them out and it's irritating. So he gets thrown in prison. Listen, if all you are is nice to people thinking you're loving them but offer no spiritual truth that you try to separate them somehow because you're going to be offensive, you're going to hurt people's feelings or whatever, that's spiritual malpractice according to Ephesians chapter 4. But if all you do is speak the truth and you don't love them, now you're just noise. Now you're just loud in their life. 
Now you'd be like Jesus coming and just condemning them when they're already condemned and just piling on. And you just become a, clay, a noisy gong, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. So when it comes to this idea of the battlefield of sexuality, or that sector, if you will, to use that metaphor, moving outside of God's intended purpose of what sexuality is for, moves you outside of his liberty, his freedom, and all that does is lead to destruction, chaos, and bondage. See, the Bible's idea, God's design for our sexuality, it's, it's really not complicated at all. <laughs> it's just not. There's nothing complicated about it. It doesn't change, and it gives life. That was one of the most amazing things to me, and, and just as a, you know, to be a dad and what that meant. The closest thing I'll ever be able to create anything is my two children, and now watching my seven grandchildren, and on it goes, right? Matthew 19, 4 says this, Have you not read, this is Jesus speaking, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them, what? Male and female. And if that wasn't enough, he blesses them even more. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Therefore whatever God has joined together, don't let anyone separate. That's the description and the definition and the standard for the family, for society, as it grows out from the family. See, culture's view now is extremely complicated. It always changes. It is ever-changing, and it doesn't give life. And in that view, sexuality or gender is just a social construct, meaning God's design is being replaced with something else. So now I have a decision to make. See, Scripture says, when you were in darkness and I was in darkness over here, you and I loved it. <laughs> we didn't want to come to the light. And yet God says, go to those people who you used to be one of to say things they won't want to hear, the things they won't understand. It puts you in the same position of Isaiah. And by the way, when you are on the mission tomorrow, you dare not make the mistake of making the message more agreeable or diluted down in some way. There can be no compromise to the message. That wasn't an option for Isaiah, and it's not an option for you and I. A good example of this is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 18. Peter and John, they're all they're brought together before their political leadership, the Sanhedrin, all, the, all the, the men in power that could actually do something physically to them, and they have this conversation, and they get charged, and so they charge them. So they, the Sanhedrin, call them, the disciples, charging them, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Quit it. Knock it off. It's unacceptable. You can't do it anymore. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or God, you be the judge. I love that. <laughs> At some point, dear Christian, you have to get to a place where this is it. I don't really care what you all think anymore in culture. I will hold fast to the nature and character of Jesus Christ and his word, and that's it. Do what you got to do, whatever that is, but this is it. I'm not doing it. Why? Same thing in Isaiah, they repeat here, verse 20. We cannot help but speak and see what we have heard. I can't get it out of my head these last three years. I can't just pretend it didn't exist. I can't say it didn't happen. I have to say this. 
Because it's true, it's God's reality. And you don't have to like it. And it's not to be mean-spirited. It doesn't have to be that way. But this is the truth. Listen, the gospel in and of itself is just going to be an irritation to people. You, you understand? You don't, have to do any, you don't have to raise your voice like I am right now. <laughs> you don't have to get all excitable or anything. You just have to say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the only way that you can be redeemed. The moment you say the word only, there's a fight, right? You don't have to, you can explain it in the nicest way. It won't matter. You have to be able to tell what God did for you when you go back into the darkness with the light. Why? Here's the third tactic. You have to make disciples. Because if you don't, the world will and is and does. That is quite evident in our secular education. They're doing a fine job as per Barna's research. James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. At some point, dear Christian, you have to come to terms with, you know the right thing to do. You got to do it. You got to say something. You got to stand up. You got to write something. You got to make your voice heard and known. How do you know what the right thing to do is? How do you know what that is for you where you live, work, and play in your own life? Just ask the question once again, by what standard? What measurement are you using? Why should I go along with this? What is, what is the standard that you're standing on to make this claim that I should do this thing or that thing or this is right or this is wrong? Where is that coming from in your worldview? And once you know the right thing to do in Christ through God's word, that's the standard. That's the foundation that we're driving for here at this body that this is the absolute authority of God's word, and you and I as Christian people, as believers, are meant to conform to it. It doesn't get conformed to us and what we think, and that's the hard work for us. It is hard. It is impossible without the Holy Spirit in your life, by the way. And when you get to that place, it must be acted on. If it's not, it's sin for you in all areas of life. Again, remember, nobody is neutral, and dear Christian, you shouldn't be. You see, you know, I have, I'm assuming you all have too, some examples of that. One of those is just this, because of COVID and everything that's gone on, all the things that parents were exposed to while their kids were doing school at home. You've seen now some of the parents going to school board meetings around the country, haven't you? That's acting on it. That's the righteous anger being applied because they are my children. They are not the government's children and educator's children or anybody else's children. They belong to me. So that's just one area. And parents are waking up to all of that. And we as a nation are waking up to that, how their children are being taught, discipled by others and others' values. Proverbs 24 says this, verse 11, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. That's the picture of the mission you have to understand what's happening ultimately where this road leads. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Do you get the picture? You're like, they're just running, they're just running to destruction. And you and I are stepping in trying to grab as many or whatever we can. And the beautiful thing about that is, is that God has bring people in your life and mine, again, where you live, work, and play, that you can do that with. You're not responsible for stopping them. You're responsible for sharing what you have seen and what you have heard he is the one that does the changing. 
1 Thessalonians 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So here's the standard, here's the, the battlefield sector of just sexuality. Each one of you should know to con- how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things as we have told you beforehand and warned you solemnly. There's a weight to this. God has not called us for impurity but holiness. Why? Just like what Isaiah saw. You now see the same thing in Christ. Your personal holiness. Set apartness. Never confuse that with, oh, I've got to be perfect and then throw your hands up because you know you can't be. That's not it. You are now called separated from the culture. We'll get to that in another week or two maybe. See, we have to get as a church what I think a clear understanding about the business of making disciples. I learned this early on not knowing it with how I was raised in a church, uh, dad who was an elder and all of that. And then when it came to ministry, thinking I had to do something because parents are entrusting their kids to me. So there's a balance to that. And I learned this. As a ministry, as a church, children's ministry, student ministry, adult ministry, it doesn't matter. The only thing that we can do is come alongside you as a parent. It is your responsibility as a parent to disciple your children. The best we'll ever do is reinforce that. And so when your teenage son comes to Jacob or used to come to me, and I would say something, and all of a sudden the light bulbs would go on, and then I would have a conversation with the parent. Do you know how long I've been telling that very same thing? I've been beating my head against the wall. <laughs> you say it one time, and all of a sudden the skies part and everything opens up. <laughs> well, praise the Lord for that. They finally got it. <laughs> That's the best we'll ever to do. But as a church... We have to understand it's about discipleship. What does that mean for you and for me? If you invite someone, if you're bringing someone to you know, something that we're doing, please understand they are, first and foremost, your responsibility to disciple if you're bringing them. They belong to you. Now, it doesn't mean no one else participates. It doesn't mean that. But they're your joy to disciple to help them grow and mature in Christ. And you may pass them off to another small group or ministry or something like that because they don't want to be in yours. Great! But you'll stop going to yours to go to someone else's to make sure they get connected. Do you see it? That's discipleship. To come alongside them when life gets hard. Here's the fourth tactic, last one. You need to move against any movement, ideology, or cultural group that stands against the standard of God and His holiness that Isaiah saw. As a church, you and I are not supposed to love the world nor the things of this world. In other words, we are not cultural's ally in any of this. But we are to stand against those groups and those principalities and powers again because they keep people in bondage. I believe you could sum Jesus' ministry up like that. His whole ministry in those three and a half years or so that he was on earth. Here's just a couple examples. Jesus was against lust as he preached the Sermon on the Mount. A concept, an ideology. 
but he was for the woman who was caught in adultery at the well, right? She was hauled through and thrown down and this whole test and this, this just, let's try to trip him up. They didn't care about her at all. And yet Jesus' response to her was, I don't condemn you. Why? Because she's already condemned. So were the guys that brought her. Where are your accusers? They understood what was going on. If you're pure, if you haven't sinned, you'll go ahead and throw the first stone. And they all left, and he picks her up. And watch what he does. You remember what he does? I don't condemn you. There's the love part. What's the truth part that he shared? Go your way and sin no more. No yelling, no Bible thumping, no anything. Just speaking the truth over the delusion. Jesus was against the Pharisees. Boy, was he against them. He said some pretty hurtful things, hard things, hurtful things. But he was for Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Jesus was against Satan, but in Mark chapter 5, in which we covered, he was for the man who is demon-possessed. And he healed him, restored him, and set him on a path of eternity. See, the goal of the mission isn't to take someone and, and try to fix them from whatever ailment they have, whatever sinful piccadillo that they have, or to stay with our theme about sexuality. Your job is not to take someone who may be homosexual and make them straight. That is not your job. Your job, and your one and only job, is to bring them to Jesus Christ. He's the one that will straighten it out. He's the one that will transform. He's the one that will respond in the way that they need. That's not your job. It's not my job. It's his He's the one giving the power to transform. Not you and not me. When you look at Jesus' life, his ministry, here are two little sub-tactics that we should be employing in our own life. He did two things primarily over and over and over again. One of those was prayer. The other one was actually teaching, preaching the truth. Jesus goes away and prays. He always, he's always going away to pray. Praying for people. Praying for the re restoration. Praying that, that the, the ministry would take place. Pouring his heart out to the Father like he did at the cross. To redeem a people. Praying maybe like Paul, given the boldness to, to speak the truth, even though he was just beat up and left for dead in one city, he goes to the other. Because that would seemingly be a hindrance to want to keep saying what you said at the last city, wouldn't it? <laughs> I just got the snot kicked out of me over here, but now I have to have the boldness and courage and faithfulness to go to the next city to do the same thing. What's your view of the mission? God gave Isaiah a calling to fulfill, to preach to a nation that wouldn't hear, although there is always a remnant. And although this encounter was, through his encounter, Isaiah's encounter, he was profoundly aware of his sin yet he made himself available to the mission. He was, in other words, willing to go. What do you see? How do you respond to the Lord's question, who's going to go for me? Will you be willing? 